we first started doing this 10 years ago, I was told by my mentors in the city that nobody wants colored concrete, to which I decided to not listen. Gotta love the rebellious nature that spawns great ideas. Hi, welcome to Maker's Moment, a podcast about makers in Edmonton and beyond. I'm your host, Vicki Wersinski. I'm a maker and designer as well as co-organizer of the Royal Bison Art and Craft Fair here in Edmonton. In this episode, OG Edmonton concrete design superstars Matt and Shauna Hyde from Concrete Cat. Designer, maker, manufacturer hybrids, they went from construction company to concrete design house, making super bright, colorful, modernist objects out of one of the supposedly dullest, coldest materials around, concrete. They've been at this for 10 years, and it's so great to hear from those who have been in the game for a while about where they came from. Of course, they ignored some sage advice and followed sheer curiosity to make something truly new. That eventually led to work for the Whitney Museum, Sephora, and the Dwar Fashion House, as well as a slew of other brands. Matt and Shauna tell us how a lucky break helped them get into the USA and also the global market, and they tell us about working together as a couple, what their take on being a maker is, how concrete is a polarizing material and how being based in Edmonton has affected them over the years. Big thanks to Edmonton Made for sponsoring this podcast. You can hear more about how they help our makers in this fair city at the end of the show. This interview was recorded in April of 2018 at the Concrete Cat Studios in Edmonton. My name is Matt Hyde. Our company is Concrete Cat. And we are a studio that makes things out of concrete. This is our 10th year of business as Concrete Cat. Because this is the radio, describe what you make, what it looks like. A, a lot of times our work gets lumped in with ceramics work because we a lot of our forms are similar to what you would see in ceramic forms. So things like vases, vessels, small bowls. Um, and then some things that are a little more design-oriented that, that have a really specific function. So trays and card holders and stands. And then when we get into big things, it's a lot of tabletops. Things like lamp bases, um, kind of anything really. Concrete is a very versatile material, so you can do a lot with it. Concrete is so interesting because, I mean, to us, we all see it as like this gray, asphalty colored thing. Um, but your concrete work looks a lot different. Because we wanted to see what happens when you soften concrete up. What do you, what... And not soften it up in terms of strength. Our concrete is ridiculously strong. That's why we can do the delicate forms that you'll see it in. Um, that's how we can do really thin shapes and really intricate detail, is you have to have a mix that's incredibly strong. But softening in terms of color is a big one. That's what we're no, well, most well known for, is really soft pastels, but also really vibrant, punchy colors too. But things that you wouldn't expect to see in concrete. Uh, when we first started doing this 10 years ago, I was told by my mentors in the city that nobody wants colored concrete. And if they do want colored concrete, they want earth tones, to which I decided to not listen and wanted to just see, wanted to see what would happen if we did these soft colors. And we've had to build our color combinations and our color chart from scratch. We're probably three or 400 different color combinations and base colors that we have. A lot of times you'll hear concrete being lumped in with, like, associated with brutalism. 
is where a lot of people, when they t- hear about concrete, that's the first thing they jump to. It's like, oh, it's, that's brutal, right? And it's like, no, it doesn't have to be, Doesn't everything doesn't have to be brutalist. We'd like it to be soft, inviting to the touch, um, something that is warm and conveys a lot of emotion. Not things you ordinarily associate no, with concrete. No. Not cold, yeah. <laughs> not rough. Yeah. But that's definitely like an incredible design challenge. Where do you come from? Did you go to art school? Did you go to design school? Like, are you self-taught? My background is design and illustration um, with a little bit of marketing. Yeah, my background (laughs) is English lit. So it's... uh... Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it just goes to show. I mean, you don't have to go to design school to produce design. Do either of you have a business background? Well, I would you, say, yeah, I mean, you were a young entrepreneur. Yeah, I, I would say my business background is very uh, self-taught. I didn't have business mentors, so everything I learned, I learned directly from doing it and either screwing something up or succeeding at something. Sure, you're natural. What's the first thing you ever made? Out of concrete, like an object out of concrete? Yeah. I think our, I think our, ba- our Vesta vase, it's like a general purpose vase, tough to tip over really resilient. And where did that come from? Where did the idea for it come from? This is a tough question. I mean, we did start with architectural surfaces like countertops. Yeah. And there are a lot of people that appreciated the look. Concrete's a polarizing thing. You either like it or you don't like it. Because no matter how polished it is, it still has an industrial tone to it. And so there were a lot of people that wanted concrete but didn't need a countertop. Well, yeah, so actually, move to small shapes. How do we how do we create something that's easier to ship and shares easier? And we came across the realization that no matter what size of piece you do, uh, people's feelings about it are the same. So it was mm-hmm. a business move, essentially, to start mm-hmm. making objects on yes. top of and yeah, well, and, and a, a love to... for those things and realizing the potential. Did you realize at that point that making objects could be a viable career? Uh, it took a while. (laughs) Yeah, we hoped it would be, but it it really took, it seemed like something fun on the side and you could make a little bit of extra money at Christmas, basically. In there. Yeah, it was like, yeah, Yeah. it's fun on the side. But we didn't really realize it was viable until we were contacted by a retailer because we didn't know how the retail ecosystem worked at all. And so how did that happen? How did an American retailer figure out that you were making weird concrete (laughs) things in Edmonton? Well, we were posting our work on Instagram. And this is very early Instagram yeah. days. But uh, someone saw a picture and asked if, if we would sell wholesale. And I was like, yes. Totally. And <laughs> said, I feel, I've found that with most business things, you just say yes. You say yes. So I said yes. Yeah. And then we put together a bunch of items and shipped them on consignment. There was a little bit of risk, but... And it seemed that once one person kind of came on board just it just started to snowball more and more people as soon as a little bit was out in the world and we could actually get stuff into the hands of people more people wanted it would you guys call yourselves makers yes yes how would you define the word maker well we we make more than we consume okay what does being a maker mean to you it's just in there you have to make (laughs) feel like you're alive i think there's an a there's an internal drive it's a bit of pride too you're like i could buy that but i could probably make it better and i think that's an overall culture in edmonton 
I guess to add to the making more than consuming, also making things I haven't seen before. Ten years ago, it was unheard of to make objects and sell them out of, uh, from concrete. No one was doing it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the marketplace, there's it's a thing. Like it, It's a whole culture of making handmade concrete stuff. It's been nice to kind of see, to see that open up and be like, oh, this is actually a real thing and there's validation behind it that we what we're doing is real. Like, and fun, too. It's fun. Like, you know, like doing the work is actually satisfying to see it from beginning to end. I mean, yeah. Like, why else do we design and make prototypes and create things, right? It's like the end result. Like, when you pull it out of the oven or whatever, you're like, yes, it worked out. It's a nice feeling. Mm-hmm. So, like, did you ever expect that you would have a company with, you know, 10 employees and a huge warehouse space and be shipping all over the world? If you're doing that... Are you still makers, personally? <laughs> uh, Matt is pointing at himself. He's covered in concrete. <laughs> the, yeah, we're definitely still makers. But what we found with the work, there's been times when I've been more hands off the work and more hands on the work. And for the work to be its very best, I have to be hands on. I have to be making some of the patterns. I have to be doing the building of colors. I have to be going over consistencies for castings. Like I. I have to have a hand in it. We both had experiences working at companies that grew where you were further away from the front line. So we knew we wanted to be at the front line and we knew for other people that are creative, they're not, they need satisfaction from doing the actual work. And so it was important for us to create a studio where not just us, but more than us could have a fulfilling life as an artist and be creating. But the, yeah, it's a tough line because the expenses of a studio are high. So it's like small manufacturer artist. We're always right well, yeah. on that edge of how do you keep it going but keep the spontaneity of being an artist. It's not just me designing objects. There are designs in the line that other artists that work in the studio have designed um, and they end up getting like an extra design commission off of all of the sales of those objects that they've designed and cool. taken taken ownership of. Color is a very collaborative process. How do you know when a color combo is a winner? You feel an emotional response, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we feel it here, and then we put it out there. It's an interesting thing to see responses from different markets or people from different cities or different demographs. Yeah, different Royal cities. Royal Bison is a great opportunity for us to see like those emotional responses like right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Feedback matters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Feedback is <laughs> totally. huge. What sorts of teachings, books, people inspired you or helped you get into this path? I started working at a very young age. For some odd reason, my ideas were never go work for somebody. They were always just make money on your own. Yeah, I found at a very young age, I was always had some sort of side hustle to make money. I don't have a name or a designer, but it's just the desire to need to be in color. I think people are afraid of color. I don't know how that happens. Even though their initial response is love for color, well, then they there's go always the a step one. back. Yeah, <laughs> and I yeah, think that's yeah. silly, and, it, and it's sad because I feel like color brings joy. To add to that has always been to somewhat to be contrarian to the things that I'm being told. Like that that ties back into the idea of like having like when I said my mentors said like oh like people don't want to see colored concrete those were people from construction home building industry because that's where all our work was at the time I wanted to have people have really intimate connections with color and objects 
So you're aiming to escape neutrality, basically. Yes. <laughs> uh, why do you make things in Edmonton? No, no particular reason. It's, um, we were here and we started making things, but the thing that we've learned the most about selling our work is realizing that the market is global and that as a studio, you could be, you really could be anywhere. Uh, we make things in Edmonton because of circumstance, but it's, it's a great city, but there's also lots of other great cities I wouldn't let, and lots of great t towns, and lots of great, like, hamlets and villages and, like, whatever. You could, you could make some, something anywhere. What are the pros and cons of making in Edmonton? The pros are it's quiet, it's cold most of the time. There's no Less distractions. distractions. So you can focus on your work. And Very secluded. Up. You have a pretty good idea that your voice is your voice. I think those things are really good about Edmonton, especially starting out if you're, if you're new to it. I, I wouldn't recommend being in a city that will have a lot of pressure on you from the outside. Like until you've discovered yourself, don't, don't be... Don't be in New York. Don't be in L.A. Don't be in Montreal. Don't be in Chicago, Paris, London. Like until you've found that voice, you need to be you need to be guarding yourself. So I don't mean this negatively, but in a sense, we're saying that Edmonton is style less. Yeah, definitely. So you have the freedom to do whatever you want versus if you were in Scandinavia or something, all your work would have to look. There like would be the expectations. Yeah. Okay. On the flip side of that, the hardest thing once you do find that voice is that Edmonton is really far away from probably where a bunch of your clients are going to be because Edmonton is a really small marketplace. It's not as much as in Alberta where like this is a big city. Globally, this is a very small city. So like if you draw a population density circle around Southern California and around uh, New York and extend those circles out, Edmonton is like the farthest point away <laughs> from both of those areas. I mean, Edmonton, it's amazing and kind of tricky all at the same time. <laughs> and flights, yeah. if you need to go visit clients. Yeah, it you takes time. Coming from Edmonton, it's for sure probably two flights, for sure. <laughs> Guaranteed. Yeah. yeah. Takes all day. How important is your local market and, and your local customers to your business? It was at the beginning. If you look at it in terms of like emotional support, hugely important to have, even if it's 100 people that really support you that's huge i'm with you edmonton is overwhelmingly supportive yes of its projects what's the best part about making things having a concept become physical so seeing having an idea that has no form and is just thoughts in your head and having it having it realized in like the physical world um is a really powerful moment what's the worst part about making things <laughs> Oh, uh, not everything turns out the way you expected. <laughs> no you, doubt. You throw a surprising amount of stuff out. Well, and things take longer, generally, than expected. Yes. Patience. How do you learn from something not working out? So the idea of that every failure can bring you closer to just being a little better. Every failure should make you a little better. That's design you, thinking. Or else you're blowing it. Yeah. And if you're not failing, you're yeah. not pushing hard enough. Yeah. So comfort in that uncomfort. Um, I realize this could be a podcast all on its own. And just briefly, how do you keep an eye on sustainability? 
adding recycled objects has always been something that's been interesting to us as well into products so we're always on the lookout for what what are some like for us it's been post-consumed material it's cool that you're thinking about it i feel like 10 years ago the conversations around sustainability were much smaller um so it's just interesting to hear how everyone's sort of approaching it as we start realizing we're, we're making tons of things and yeah. <laughs> what the result of that's going to be in like 30 years. Knowing what you know now, what would you do differently if you were starting out again? I'd probably move into product development faster. What made you wait? It was the height of Edmonton. Construction boom. Construction yeah. boom. And just been like, hey, develop product even if nobody wants it. And I would have looked towards an outside market faster too. I wouldn't have waited for someone from the outside to give me approval first. I would have started hunting those leads sooner or getting my work out where people could see it sooner. We needed to be sharing on a platform where more people could see the stuff. So like Instagram? Instagram, but even getting into stores, even being in a, in a public, like a public place that also has your brand attached to it. The realization breaking into U.S. because we never thought being from Edmonton that we would grow straight into L.A. and New York. We thought it would be growth into Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto. Yeah. I would have a lot sooner focused on like where's the most amount of people. There's the chance where there might be somebody who likes us. Who are your maker or designer crushes? Who are you loving these days? So the rest of us can Google them and spy. There's a company out of Brooklyn called Chiaoza. C-H-I-A-O-C-H-I-O-Z-Z-A. But it's a couple, Adam, their names are Adam and Terry, um, the partners. They were one of the first people that we met that looked like us, where it was a married couple or, well, partners together, and they were working together as well. It was fun to see someone else because we'd never seen someone else like us. And their, their work is really fun. Definitely crushed because it helps create a bit of, makes it feel like we're doing something right. Validation. Yeah, that, that, that a relationship like this can actually work because that's one thing that we run into quite a bit is people are like, oh, you guys are married and you're working together? That's that's not going to go good. <laughs> we're like, I, I could never work with my wife. <laughs> you hear all this stuff and it's like, uh-oh. What we've learned is that it is more common in the maker world. I think because there are no there's no separation between like the personal life and the work life, it's all blended together. So in ways it sort of has to be a partnership all the time for it to be real because it's not on a Monday to Friday schedule. It's all the time. I mean, we met so many makers when we went to New York. I feel like we can't help but Think over there. Yeah, like when you see people living and working like Deuce and Deuce and... How lovey. Mayan Zilberman. Sweet Saba is her company. She makes like cast candy that is very cool. Just really our, our focus still is having a studio where creation can happen, artists can work, and they can work with their hands making stuff. They can see the designs come to life. A lot of what we do at Concrete Cat, as much as it's us and having vision, another huge side to it is connecting with other people that can share that vision. Edmonton's tricky. It sure is. I just think it's so impressive how far you've punched out of it. That's luck. Part of it is luck that we that we created something as unique as it is. Because if it was something where we were doing wooden tables and chairs, like every city has hundreds of woodworkers in it. 
Well, we're glad you're here. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time. Aw, can't you totally tell that Matt and Shauna work and live life together? They basically finish each other's sentences. It's really awesome to hear about how they morph their business from something very practical and local-based into something really global and far-reaching. It's also super neat to know that Matt is a self-taught designer with a degree in English Lit. I think I left that tidbit a little too much alone during the interview, so I called him up recently to get him to tell me how he went from studier of words to creator of concrete vessels. The, the Lit degree, I think, almost happened by chance just because I accumulated enough credits. So while I was doing this very general arts degree with a specialization in English Lit, I was also uh, working construction um, to pay for university. And one of the materials I ended up handling a decent amount was concrete. You know, it seemed so immediately rewarding to be able to take powder and rocks and sand, mix it together with water, and you know, within a very short period of time, you've made something that has the potential to last for a thousand years. And to be like, this is, you can buy bags of magic just at any hardware store and do this. It's so amazing how the smallest thing in your life, like your part-time job to get through school, can totally change your entire work life in the end, right? Like, oh, it's, it's amazing yeah, where, the, where work comes from. <laughs> Mom and Dad, this is what you can do with an English Lit degree. <laughs> As always, you can get more info and show notes over at royalbison.ca slash makersmoment. If you want to know when new episodes come out, we're on SoundCloud. Subscribe to the SoundCloud feed and keep an eye on those at the Royal Bison social media feeds to find out when there's something new to listen to. We're also on Apple Podcasts now, so subscribe, do the rating thing, whatever you want to do. And big thanks to our season sponsor, Edmonton Made, who wants you to know that we are the city of hidden gems, and Edmonton Made wants to find them all. Edmonton Made is a program run by Edmonton Economic Development Corporation. It features local businesses by sharing their story, connecting them with resources to help them grow, and creating a community of support around them. They also make the gorgeous Gifted Catalog, an annual catalog filled to the brim with work from local makers. Visit edmontonmade.com to see how they can help your business shine. And of course, our super fun original music was created by Carbalizer. You can look up the newest album at carbalizer.bandcamp.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.